Hey, Star Child, welcome back to another episode of The Spiritual Gaze. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon. And I'm your other host, Angel. And this is our twice-monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the wide reaches of spirituality without pretending that it all makes sense. Uh, Because none of it does make sense, really. I mean, that's why they call it Great Mystery, because that's all it is. That's true. And I love to be in the center of a great mystery. I love to be reading a great mystery. Yeah. I used to read Agatha Christie in like the second grade. And the librarian was like, this is probably a little too advanced for you. And I was like, oh, no, I'm ready for it. Wow. Yeah. Though, I guess I was reading like V.C. Andrews books, most known for a book called Flowers in the Attic about... Incest. About incest. Well, so we both were reading things well ahead of (laughs) the time we should have been reading things. Uh, Yeah. And here we are. Just messed up as can be. <laughs> and and who are we? Let's introduce ourselves. Uh, well, I'm Angel Lopez. Yes, you are. I am a writer. Yes, you are. I am a film producer. That's true. And executive. And I am an astrologer. And a damn fucking good one. Hey, thank you. Yeah, it's true. And who are you? I am Brandon Alter. I am a healer. Go on a tarot reader and teacher. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm also a writer and a performer. You sure is. And sometimes I'm Brandonna Summer. You are Brandonna Summer. And uh, I'll be her the second weekend of October here in Los Angeles. So if you are here in Los Angeles and you want to come and see her brand new show, Brandonna Summer Healing Through Living, I encourage you to buy your tickets now. Where can the children get their tickets, honey? Uh, you could go to her Instagram, Brandonna Summer, and you could click the link in her profile. They're being sold on brownpapertickets.com. So you could also probably just go there and search Brandonna Summer Healing Through Living. Or if you're really coming up short, you could just email us and we'll send you a direct link. That's fair. All right, Gazers. Well, hopefully we'll get to see you there. I'll be there both nights. Brandonna Summer will be there. Unfortunately, Brandon won't. You won't get to meet me, but she's a lot more gorgeous. Yeah. Noche won't be there either. That's true. He'll be at home. Yeah, he is our pup. We are husbands. Oh, right. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> if you haven't listened to us before. We're married. We are married. And uh, yeah, reside in Los Angeles. And we're two months shy of our anniversary. Our three-year wedding anniversary and our nine-year being in a relationship anniversary. Holy hell. Uh, shall we check in? Yeah, babes. How are you doing? I'm doing well after my complete emotional breakdown last night. Yeah, should we just tell the children? Should we spill the tea? Courtesy of the Pisces full moon. <laughs> we tried recording this uh, part of the podcast last night during the Pisces full moon. And what a it fool's errand. <laughs> was not good. The then, first time we tried. Well, the first time we tried was not good because we didn't record it properly. Yeah, I didn't record. Yeah, we uh, hit record in the wrong way and only one of our mics recorded so it wouldn't have worked anyway but then it just kind of led to a full-on implosion yes i fully (laughs) imploded and we realized that the pisces full moon takes place in my 12th house and so all i wanted to do was fall apart and go to bed which is what you did i fell apart and i went to bed (laughs) (laughs) and now i'm back together but I'm doing well. I learned a valuable lesson yesterday about not overscheduling myself and prioritizing and honestly just facing what I'm actually capable of and that I'm not superwoman and I can't do it all in a day. But even when you said to me, well, what if you just made one of your things 30 minutes shorter so you could have just gotten yourself like lunch or meditated? And I was like, 
yeah, why didn't I think about doing that? So moving forwards, I definitely will start to carve out a little bit more of that time. How are you, babe? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Yeah, you are doing really good. Yeah, I am. Uh, I've just been focusing a lot on writing and really trying to, you know, balance out everything in my life, you know, focus on work when I need to work and definitely have had a lot of stuff coming up, but um, feeling good and excited about all the things that are uh, on the horizon. And that includes some of my writing work and yeah, trying to get some just restful time in, family time in. I had my sister and my little nephew out here this last week, got to spend a really fun day with them, which I just loved. I wish I could see them more. He's a special kid. He is a special kid. And we got to have dinner with both my sisters and we're uh, one each of the fire signs. Yeah, so. fire sign dinner. <laughs> Yeah, how was that for you? I mean, it was fun, but I'm used to being an honorary fire sign. But when the three of you get together, I am truly an Aquarius. I'm truly just an observer. I'm yeah. just like sitting in the audience, just like watching what's happening. You're like the kid in the backseat, just like on his phone. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, I love it. I love getting to hang out with you and your sisters. Yeah. We're, but We're a good time. But it really shows me that I am, I am just that an honorary fire sign and not a true <laughs> fire sign because y'all are operating at an intensity that I cannot, I cannot uh, vibe with. Fire signs. Fire signs unite. Yeah, where are, where are all my fire signs at? Hit me up. So anyhow, we have a really fun, exciting spirit talk coming up. So we're going to just get into a little micro dose of reality. So I guess, yeah, without further ado, let's do it. It's this episode's Dose, Dose of, of reality. reality. So I said I wasn't going to watch The Real Housewives of Orange County this season. And then I don't know what happened, but I am watching The Real Housewives of Orange County this season. He fell in like a sucker. Oh, I really did. But I'm kind of glad I'm watching it because there's a very interesting character. She's the mother of one of the new... Uh, housewives, Bronwyn, who's yes. lovely and seems like as real as you can be as somebody who is on a reality television show. Yeah, like I've said, I feel like she's cut from the same cloth as season one Teddy Mellencamp. Yeah, before she watched too much of herself on TV <laughs> yeah. and became a character of herself. Totally. So Bronwyn's mom is this very, I'm going to say, problematic character. She is mm. a spiritual psychologist. She has rainbow dreadlock hair. She has two large chunky necklaces that she always wears. One says ego, and the other, which is significantly more problematic, says medicine woman. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I thought she would be an interesting subject for our dose of reality is because she is a perfect example of spiritual bypass. So what exactly is that? How would you categorize? So spiritual bypass is essentially using spiritual skills or spiritual language to avoid growth and transformation as opposed to using those very things to propel and assist, encourage growth and transformation. It's basically like using your little bit of knowledge to be elitist or be self-righteous or be smarter than what's actually wanting to happen in your own life. Yeah, and let's preface this by saying, you know, we obviously don't know this woman. She's, you know, being edited for reality TV. But what is being presented on the TV show is definitely of that, primarily because it seems like when she's being confronted with, like, real-life 
what I would say are like spiritually based circumstances, particularly in her relationship with her daughter, she is not able to like come to the table and confront her own self. Yeah. And I think we could also look at spiritual bypass as like hiding from your life in spirituality as opposed to using spirituality to actually engage with your life on a deeper level. Yeah, because I'd say like, you know, to have a spiritual life, to live a spiritual life is one of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it feels like her usage of spiritual bypass, anyone's usage of it, is, yeah, an avoidance tactic, almost like a shield yeah. to your vulnerability. Or self-aggrandizement, like, look at how spiritual I am. Totally. And that is something that Angel and I have come up against a lot in the spiritual communities. And one of the main reasons why we started this podcast, because we were like, there has to be another way to go about it and to not be so elitist and so self-righteous about this very wide world that you truly can't understand. Yeah, because it can start to feel on the surface like, you know, new age spiritualism is primarily for like one type of person or one demographic. And I feel like there are a lot of people out there right now who are really trying to like bring to light like some of the appropriation that goes on and, you know, all of these conversations that need to be had And, uh, you know, our goal is to present, like, a wide variety of experiences and viewpoints around what it means to live a spiritual life in, you know, and just be in this world. Yeah. And so Dr. Deb is a really interesting example because she is, like, a very well-trained clinical psychologist or psychiatrist. And she's also presenting as, like, a very spiritual, witchy human being. And she's problematic. She might have just gone to Burning Man and done a lot of drugs and like saw the sign. And now she's like, here I am. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm being all like judgy, judgy. Because we don't know her. (laughs) We don't know Dr. Deb's life. Yeah. But we do know the four episodes that have aired of this season. We do very well. And they make us very uncomfortable. Yeah. And like you said, it does just kind of bring up that type of person in the community. And it does get frustrating because at the end of the day, those tend to be the people too who like you know, are able to utilize their resources to get, you know, more of a platform. And there are other people who are really walking the talk, living it day to day, uh, who probably have just as much experience or time on this planet as she does, but yeah, who don't get the exposure that she does. So that was our mini deep dive into Dr. Deb in the Real Housewives of Orange County. And I highly suggest you check it out. We want to know what you have to say. All right, let's get the children ready for this episode's incredible spirit talk. Yeah, guys, we were so lucky to have the phenomenal Stephen Canals. Uh, He is best known as the co-creator and one of the executive producers of the hit show, Pose! Pose. One of our favorites. (laughs) I mean... How can you not? We tried not to fangirl. Uh, but yeah, it's on FX. And if you haven't watched it, then you crazy. You crazy. But, yes. But also you can watch the first season on Netflix. I believe it's still on there now. Get to it. Yeah. And the second season ended not too long ago. So you can probably still get it on demand. Um, but 
Highly recommended. It's just the most beautiful show set in the late 80s, early 90s, um, just around the ballroom scene in New York City and deals with so many intense topics. I mean, we've talked about it on our show before, um, but he is, you know, a writer on the show. Uh, He just directed his first episode of the show called Revelations that was on season two. That was a gorgeous, gorgeous episode. And we got to talk to him about all things life and his history and writing and lots of lots of fun spiritual talk so get ready everybody it's time for this episode's spirit talk so we are very excited because we have stephen canals with us Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and on the day before your birthday. I hey. know. So we feel double honored. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Please. This feels like a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> the Virgo, she was checking her calendar. I was like, when is that going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm spiritual. I'm gay. What is, where's the invite? Um, but yeah, so grateful to have you here. And obviously, like on the eve, too, of what I get, assume is your very first Emmys. Mm-hmm. And Pose is nominated for how many? Six. Six, including Best Drama Series. Yes. Which is amazing. Super exciting for the the little show that could. Um, Please. I mean, now I feel like it's the big show that everyone's talking about. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. We were put up on Netflix a few months ago and something just shifted like we found an audience after the first season, um, but once we were up on Netflix, I mean that just that really changed everything. And I know like our viewership has definitely increased since being on on Netflix. But mm-hmm. I was uh, a few months ago. I was in New York. I was at the Brooklyn Museum, and I had not one but two people approach me in the course of an hour and a half while walking through exhibits oh, to wow. say oh my God, I really love the show. And it was such a trippy experience for me because it's like, like I'm, I created the show, but I'm not, I'm not an actor. I'm not the face of the show. And so it was very strange and a little disconcerting, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny because I actually wanted to ask you, you are now in the public eye. Like as someone who probably never really planned on that, how has that transition been for you? Has that been easy, hard? That's a great question. You know, it feels separate and apart from me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a version of me that has to show up to do that. It's it's connected to my work, I think, is the short answer. Okay. Um, like, it, it isn't something that I personally feel like I need. It, it doesn't, it isn't where I derive joy or energy from. Um, I think it's, it's a byproduct of the work that I do, right? Like, it's just, it's part of the business. It's part of the industry. And I recognize that that visibility will help in people understanding what my brand is and hopefully will allow for me to have a sustainable career in this industry. Um, but the process of it is a little ungainly, to be honest. Yeah. It's just, it. I mean, because it isn't the reason that I entered the business. Like, I, I came at it from a very pure heart space, which is I want to create stories and, like, I want to engage audiences in critical discourse and hopefully open hearts and minds and, and 
show that we are all so much more alike than we are different. Um, so the the red carpets and all that, like it, occasionally it's fun, right? You know, like I like to get dressed up like the next person, but um, it isn't something that I need. I don't know. I I struggle with it because, like I said, I think on one end I can see the value in it, um, and at the same time, you know, like I like I want it to be about the work, right? Like that's the thing that I want folks to be discussing when they talk about Stephen Canals. Like I don't want them talking about you know like what you were wearing on the red carpet to X <laughs> right. event. You know what's yeah. important is that you're like, oh, that's the creator of Pose, and you're such a a first on it seems like multiple levels so does it feel like there's a responsibility at least at this point uh, a huge responsibility yeah. you know there aren't a lot of people that look like us mm-hmm. who are in this industry doing the work um and specifically like if i'm thinking about what it means to be latinx or afro latinx in this mm-hmm. industry mm-hmm. i mean a few uh, weeks back, I was at a gala with um, Tanya Saracha, who created Vida, which is on Stars, and uh, Gloria Calderon Kellet, who created uh, One Day at a Time. And, you know, the three of us were there, and we just had this moment where we were like, this is kind of it. Like, we're mm. the only three, well, that's not true. Um, Roberto. Aguirre Sacasa, who yeah, created yeah, Riverdale. Riverdale yeah. um, and now you have Moises, um, who created uh, Selena for mm-hmm. Netflix. Right. But it's like there's really only like a handful of us who are show creators yeah. in this business. And it like it just kind of blows my mind. It is crazy. You know? <laughs> and I think every single one of us, if you talk to us individually, you know, absolutely all feel the pressure and feel the immense responsibility to not only represent the culture and represent the people, but to be in this business and hopefully to continue to create a pathway for other people of color, LGBTQ people, women to enter the business and have a career as well. Well, cool. I want to get into some more of this stuff. I want to get into like talking about like intersectionality for you too. Mm-hmm. But but I, I think I feel like we should take it back real quick before we get too d- deep into it and just cover just some of the bases of, you know, where you're from and honestly just wanting to understand like who little Steven was. <laughs> was he allowed in his mind to vision where you are now in to any degree? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, born in, in 1980. Um, and so the city was just coming out of the heroin epidemic and then, you know, very quickly was stepping into the crack epidemic. Yeah, and then obviously, rough. And then HIV AIDS mm-hmm. um, as well. And so, uh, you know, living in housing projects in the city and and you know, just not having a ton of money. Like it was a really, it was a bleak time for the city and it was rough, you know, I have, it's interesting because whenever I talk to folks about that time period, most people say to me, you were so little though, when that was happening. And it's like, right. When you're that young and my parents were in their early twenties when they had me, it's like, there's only so much you can shield a person from the truth and the reality. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think I was just, I've always been really inquisitive. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm just a, naturally a very curious person um 
and hyper aware. And so, you know, I just, I knew that things were amiss. Right. And, yeah, and I, I mean, we tell. just discovered you were double Virgo. So you were check clocking all the details, <laughs> left and right. <laughs> left and right. Yeah. Left and right. That My poor child's brain. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, and, and so, and I was like, a, I was a very small boy. I was like very tiny. And like, I was, I don't want to say fragile, but I was, I was super sensitive and I'm like, and I still am a, a if if anyone's familiar with like the MBTI, like I'm a feeler. And so um, I think I was just constantly like taking in energy and other people's energy and then internalizing it. And so, you know, the city was scary for me and film and television became a salvation, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was a way for my parents to like breathe easy, like, oh, okay, he's inside, he's watching television, he's he's not going to be outside. Yeah. And so that was my experience. And as a as a young boy, it's funny. Like my my mom's a kindergarten teacher, um, and so she was really great about encouraging me to just play and have fun, mm-hmm. and um, like allowing me to explore whatever uh, my creative interests were at the time. I was that kid, the way that I articulated it is I was that child who would just suck the fun out of play. Like I had a spiral <laughs> notebook. Like seriously, I had a spiral notebook and I would write down like storylines for my toys. Oh my God. And then when I was like best friends and cousins, I was like, okay, like, so this is the storyline we're going to play out now. Right. And they were like, or we could just play. Right. And I'm like, right. But also I have this storyline that I wrote. Totally. It'd be more fun if we did it this way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like super, I guess a little bossy, yeah. um, <laughs> but I was like, no, but, but this will be fun. So this is what we're going to do. Um, yeah. And I, it's funny because I, I ref, when I reflect on that experience as a boy, I realized like that really was kind of the earliest versions of, of screenwriting and storytelling Completely, for me, yeah. you know, it was like. So true. And your toys were your series regulars. They sure were. <laughs> and they were commingling. Yeah. So Transformers and Ninja Turtles and Thundercats were all having oh, a key together. Central. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, I mean like that so that was that was my that was my childhood and my mm-hmm. uh I was kind of an old soul though, like as a little boy. Like I was that weird kid that like I remember in like fourth grade, I remember being on a line. We were going to an auditorium. There was something happening in the auditorium. And uh, everyone was talking about New Kids on the Block. Mm-hmm. And someone had brought the cassette tape in. And I remember like being made fun of because I had no idea who they were. Everyone was like, <laughs> do you like New Kids on the Block? And I was like, I don't, what is, I don't know what that right. is. Like, I was listening to like Anita Baker. You know, oh like I was listening to the oldies. I was like, well, what about like Stevie Wonder? And everyone right. was like, okay, bye. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Is he on MTV? No. Like, no. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. I was like, well, what about like, I don't know. And, you know, and I, I knew like Michael Jackson and Madonna. And, right. But I, I think I didn't really have my finger on the pulse when it came to like popular culture. I think I just, I just knew like I liked what made me feel good, you right. know. And, and my parents were great in that. There wasn't a really a restriction when it came to being a consumer of of popular culture art, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, I could basically watch whatever I wanted. Um, and at like a young age, you were watching probably like maybe things your peers weren't watching. Oh, I definitely shouldn't have. Like by the time I was eight, I already was like a huge lover of 
ordinary people and Kramer oh versus Kramer. Oh my god! And like these really heavy, like Oscar-winning right. classics. Yeah. And it's like, what? Like what? You know, like all my friends are watching whatever was like, like Land you know, Before Time. Exactly. <laughs> Which I also love. Of course. I mean, how can you not? You know, like love that too. But I mean, I, yeah, I was just like a weird kid. And, right. But my parents were like totally fine with that. So. And did they watch it with you? Sometimes it depends on okay. what the movie is. I mean, I watched a lot of films with them. Um, and at a very early age, I was really hyper aware that film was being, the films and the, the television shows I was watching were being created by people. Okay. Um, so I wasn't one of those kids who like literally thought what I was watching was like real. Like right. someone just turned on a camera and like recorded someone's life. Like yeah, I knew yeah. that there were people behind the creation of it had no desire to be the person to create. Um, but I knew that there were, you know, writers and directors and whatnot. So you, so you weren't that little kid, like, someday I'm going to be doing that. When I was, like, maybe nine or ten, I think I entertained for a couple of months wanting to be an actor. And then I realized, oh, you have to actually memorize all the lines. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm good. Like, for some reason in my head, I think I, I'd seen, like, a SNL skit where they were, like, holding big cards behind the camera and so in my mind i always thought acting was just like pretending to emote but that there was someone standing there who was going to like throw your lines to you uh-huh. and when i realized like you just you really had to do the work i was like oh i don't i don't like that i don't want to do that anymore um and so that dream died and so no i mean i spent most of my childhood and going into my teen years sort of bopping around from like you know, at one point I thought I would be like an astronaut because I wanted to go to space. And then, you know, I wanted to be a teacher for a little while. I thought I might be like a lawyer because I was super argumentative when I was younger. But I didn't really have a desire to, to make content until I was 15. I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, and I joined an after school program that I realized, oh, I think that's what I want to do with my life. Mm. Oh, okay. And before we get to that, I'm just curious, how would you begin to talk about just like spirituality weaving through your childhood? If at all, was there any sense of it with your parents or your own innate sense of spirituality? So I grew up, I suppose, like in a moderately religious family. Um, I have an aunt who is uh, Christian. And so, you know, when I was a boy, every Sunday we were, you know, my mom and I would go to church with her and. Um, you know, like we had rosaries and Bibles around the house. And um, so religion was a presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm specifically saying religion and not spirituality because I think spirituality was something that I had to like, A, define for myself. And I had to sort of come into it on my own. For sure. Separate and apart from my family and from that experience. Um yeah, I don't know that I really developed a spiritual practice until I was already, like, late teens, early 20s. I, I really, I think it was when I left for college. Got it. And you had said earlier that your mom, like, she read runes for a little bit, mm-hmm. and she's into crystals. Did that show up in your childhood, or was that something that she got into later in life as well? No, that was something that she got into later in life. Mm. Yeah, it's... My, my aunt Gigi bought my mom a book about runes and bought her a rune kit. Because I think, oddly, uh, or maybe not so oddly, um, the women in my family all have a little bit of like a 
psychic ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that my, I think my mom, my mom is one of five children mm. and she's in the middle and her grandmother was someone who, she was a healer on the island of Puerto Rico. She was, because, you know, if you know anything about Puerto Rico, especially, like, in the late 1800s and going into the early 1900s, like, mm-hmm. there was a really big division between the people who lived in La Ciudad, which was in the city, and mm-hmm. then the people who lived in El Campos, like, the people who lived up in the, they called them the camps, but there was, like, basically the folks up in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and so my maternal grandmother and, like, that side of the family, they were all living in El Campo. And so... My my mom's grandmother, my great grandmother, she was a midwife. Um, so, but she also just did like I think general healing. Like she wasn't a doctor though, mm-hmm. you know. But it was all like herbal remedies and and things of that nature. And my mom was very close to her grandmother. And so, as a girl, um, every night they would speak on the phone. And so my grandmother or my great grandmother um, passed a lot of that down to my mom. So, like, now, present day, um, like, my mom creates her own teas. And so she's a big one for, like, you know, if you have an ailment or if you're not feeling well, um, you know, like, if if your head is foggy and, you know, you have some crisis happening in your life, like, my mother will spend time talking to you about about what's going on, and then she'll craft a tea that's unique and specific for you. That's right, well, I want her email. Yeah, address. seriously. I want yeah. a session. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, give me her number. It's super cool. <laughs> I will I will let you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's also amazing that she was able to like continue the lineage of that information. Cause in so many situations, like that stuff just like stopped. Yeah. It truly. Like lit like the end of the line. And as my mother would articulate it now, if she were here, um, she always says that her grandmother still talks to her. Mm-hmm. So my mother, you know, she'll tell me when she wakes up early in the morning, that's really when you're like open and receptive to that energy coming through, um, that her grandmother will mm-hmm. make her presence known and will like let her know. And so, you know, if, you know, if, if my sister or I are traveling or if something's happening in our life, it, it's odd because my mother just always knows it's strange but like you know evelyn will just she'll call me up in these moments where i'm in my head about something or something is happening and i haven't necessarily shared it um and with you know no rhyme or reason she just will call and say oh by the way baby everything's gonna be fine Mm. um and my mom my aunt um tere my mother's older sister has a very similar um ability to intuit in that way um, like my aunt knew that I was going to move to LA before I did, um, and told me that. And I was like, okay, whatever. And, right. <laughs> and then like a year later it happened. Um, so yeah, so the women in my family have always sort of been really open and receptive in that yeah. way, which is fascinating. But it didn't, so did that inform some of your own like spiritual growth later on? Like, did you find yourself sort of picking some of those pieces or was it your own personal journey? Um, I think having these really incredibly, um, strong, interesting women who, who have that ability, I think what it did is it opened me up to being a believer, you know, because I think if we're talking about 
spirituality and specifically if we're talking about like runes or stones or crystals and um or tarot you know i think there are this some people who absolutely believe it and then there are others who don't you know um astrology is is the other area you know and i think i'm someone who is uh respectful of folks who don't believe it um but I'm someone who does, you know, and I, I genuinely see the value in having that in your life. Yeah. And I, I've, I mean, I've always felt that way too, even when I didn't do it. And I felt like, I think similarly, like there was, it was just part of the culture to some degree that like, oh yeah, mom was talking to Thea's ghost last night, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. if that was true, then all of these other things, you know, and I never even had, I don't think fully moments where I thought, oh my God, that's so crazy. Or she's crazy. I was like, well, okay, I guess that's, she said that. (laughs) Well, and I, as a little boy, like I had experiences that are unexplainable and it would be easy to write it off as like, that was just a child's, you know, imagination. But my mom was present for some of those things um, and validated the experience. Like there was a, a time when I was a young boy where I think I was only like six And we were in our apartment together alone. Um, And my mom was going through a particularly rough period in her life. And uh, there was like a black crow that she saw emerge from the wall in our apartment and then fly into our kitchen and disappear into a cabinet. And as she would tell the story, she was like, I... Like, I thought I was going crazy. Like, I literally was like, oh, my God, like, this is it. Like, I'm I'm losing my mind. Um, and then five seconds later, like, I stood up and I ran over to her. And I was like, Mommy, did you see that? And she said, did I see what? And I said, did you see the bird that wow. just flew into the kitchen? So my mother, as she always says it, is, like, you have the ability to tap into that as well. Um, it's just not something that you've ever honed. Um, and I think it's interesting because I think it manifests differently for every person in my family, like having that, I, the way that we call this, like a psychic something, a psychic ability or, um, so for me, it always comes through in a dream. Mm. So I tend to have a lot of dreams that in the moment I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know what that is. And then suddenly like months or weeks later, I'm having deja vu and I'm like, oh, that was that dream that I had. Mm. Um, and so my mom's a big one for when I do have a dream. Because I'm not someone who dreams often. So if I have a dream and I wake up and I remember it, then I know it's something significant. But, and I don't know if it's just the writer in me that the dreams are never exactly what they're supposed to be. It's, it's not like, oh, I just had a dream that like I saw a house burn down and that's what's going to happen. You know, it's always something really strange happening. And then I'm having to decipher all the pieces like Blue's Clues. Um, <laughs> and so whenever I have a dream, my mom's always like, well, you just have to tap into the feeling. Like, what's the feeling that you had in the dream? Um, and so then co- like collectively we'll work together to figure out like what exactly is this dream saying or like what is it trying to tell me? Which is a little different from, like, my mom, who, like, she'll have a dream, and her dream will just be exactly what the thing is. Yeah. Well, everyone's symbolic language is different. So it just depends. And when I teach, like, psychic development stuff, I always talk about just, like, the different ways that gifts can manifest. And everyone Mm. has one that usually comes more easily. But I really believe that, like, we all have access to this, like, Mm -hmm. no matter the lineage. And it's just some people have it 
more easily. But if you work with the one, like if the more you work with your dreams, the more I think other things will come online. Like there's clear audience, which is like being able to hear things. And I even bet like when you write and you write things that you didn't know you were going to write mm -hmm. and you're like, where the fuck did that come from? Mm -hmm. That's clear audience. Absolutely. Sometimes when I'm writing, it feels like I'm on autopilot. Mm. And the way that I have been articulating it, I would say in the last couple of years is there are moments where it feels like story isn't coming from me, but it's coming through me. Like it's just being channeled. And then I'm just really the conduit. Like I'm just there to like put the words on the page. Um, and, and yeah, it's totally that. It's like, I don't know where this came from, but there it is. And, and now, I'm, you know, I've got to be the person who actively tries to do something with it. Yeah. Um, but I have a hard time at, in moments taking ownership of the work, you know, despite what a credit might say, mm. um, because it doesn't always necessarily feel like it's me. Yeah. You know, it feels like someone is, is working through me. Of course. And there's also the concept that there are spirits of ideas, like the spirit of a story. Yeah. It's literally just mm -hmm. looking for the person that will sit down and bring it into this world. But you are that person at the mm -hmm. end of the day. Because there are other stories, too, about, like, the spirit of an idea. I think Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this. Like, yeah. she wasn't writing the book, so it abandoned her, and it went and found somebody else who was writing, like, the same <gasps> story. Oh, that's uh, yeah. in Big Magic. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Love that book. I know, me too. <laughs> Love that book. So I think that's always the true artist dilemma is, is it me or is it not me? And the answer is it's both. Yes. And you're the one that like sat down and did the work and had the discipline. So even though you don't take credit for necessarily like all the brilliance or the divinity of it, you certainly need to take credit for the work, girl. Yeah. I mean, we, we work we work in tandem. We sure. work together. Yeah. Because it's the truth. It's, it's like a partnership. Neither one of us could do it alone. Totally. Now, I'm curious, have you had any other experiences like in your adult life of like sort of magic similarly to that? Have you had experiences where you're like, whoa, this feels divine? Yes. I mean, I definitely have had experiences that I suppose in some instances are divine and in other instances like it just can't be explained, but I know it's something greater than me and I'm and I'm not afraid of it. I'm open to, to it, you know. There was one point in my late 20s where I was living, I, I was working in, in, in higher education and I was a, a live-in professional. So I lived in a residence hall with college students um, and I was living in an apartment where the apartment was located in a building where a student apparently had committed suicide um, years earlier. And there were all these, there was like the, these rumors that like there was a ghost in the building. And I've always just been really open and receptive to energy. Like I just, I can walk into a space and I can feel it. Uh, and so I was living in this building and about a week into being in this apartment, I could feel like something touching the back mm -hmm. of my neck whenever I was sitting on my sofa. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it kept ha happening. And you know that feeling almost like Spidey sense, like when someone's standing right behind you and you, mm -hmm. you like, you know, there's another presence there and that kept happening and I would turn and, and then obviously there's no one there. Um, and it just kept happening consistently. And so um, after, you know, talking to my mom, we finally realized like, oh, maybe there really is, some spirit here. And this is a spirit that's like asking for help. And so, mm. um, you know, like I bought a bunch of 
candles and really try to help the spirit like move on. Um, I then like maybe three years later, I moved to Pennsylvania and I move into this apartment and within two months of being in this apartment, that same spirit was in that apartment with me. And my mother was like, oh, it it followed you. Like it went with you. Um, and so we, again, we like, we went through that same process together again. And I'm, I'm assuming that in Pennsylvania, like I actually helped, helped them to finally like Mm -hmm. move on because I haven't felt that presence again since then. Um, but I remember calling my mom and being like, oh mom, there's something in the apartment. And I didn't even tell her what specifically it was or the way that it, presented itself to me when I moved to Pennsylvania but without missing a beat the first thing she said to me is she was like oh it's the same one from the apartment in New York wow. and she just somehow could feel it and and so um that's one instance and then the other more recent um instance of of again I don't know if I would say it's divinity but I think it's to me it's just clear that like I'm open to the energy um when I moved to Los Angeles in 2012, I was living in this huge home with several other um, aspiring writers. And we were just all living in this space together, which was incredible. And the minute that I arrived, so I moved to LA September the 6th, 2012. The moment, I was the first person of the four roommates to, to get to this house. And I walk into the house. And the minute I walk in, I could feel that there was an energy and there was someone living in the in the home. And so I immediately stepped out and I called my mom. And I was like, mom, there's, a, there's something in the house. And she was like, don't worry about it. I'll send you a kit. And so, you know, she sent me the, uh, like... Uh, smudger and you know um, like She's incense like straight up and Ghostbusters yeah I love it she sent me some myrrh and you know uh-huh. <laughs> all the stuff that the three wise men had yeah. and so uh, so one of my roommates moved into this place with a cat and for whatever reason I think it's because I was the only person who had a bedroom that was up in the front of the house and everyone else's bedrooms were in the back and like the mm-hmm. rear. Um, but the cat loved being in my bedroom. And whenever I was sitting on my bed, I'd be sitting up, like, typing and writing, the cat would come in, come up right next to me, and then would look up at the wall and would be, like, scratching at the wall. And it was just, it was consistently <laughs> yeah. happening. And my roommates were like, oh, there's probably, like, a bug or maybe there's dust. And I'm like, no, I'm sitting there, like, I'm looking up. Like, there's nothing yeah. there. Um, about a year after living in this apartment... The, the two folks who were older, who owned the home, came down just to do, like, a quick, like, assessment of the house and just see how things were. Because they live, like, five hours away. Um, and so they come in and they, you know, are, are looking at the home and they ask to see my bedroom. And so we walk into the bedroom and they share with me um, that... That was the room that they had been living in for a short period because because there was like a master bedroom up on the second floor of the house that was massive. It was like really large. Um, and so like, you know, we were up there for a while and then we had all our kids and then we we moved into this space for a little bit. And I was like, oh, interesting. And something that I should add is that there were moments in the evening where I'd be in that room with the lights off. And I would sometimes, like, see flashes of orange oh. that I could never really explain. And I was like, I don't know, like, maybe it's just because I'm, like, 
because I'm in the front of the house, like maybe it's lights from like cars passing or something. I don't know, but I just keep seeing this orange flash and I don't know what it is. Um, so anyway, so they're in the apartment and they're in specifically in the room and, and we're walking around and um, the wife asks me, um, have you ever seen the orange light? And I was like, what? And she goes, have you seen the orange light? And immediately her husband exits. Oh shit. And I'm like, uh, and I didn't know how to respond. And I'm just staring at her. And she says to me, she comes up really close to me and says, well, if you do, that's our daughter. Oh. For me, it was confirmation that I was like, okay. So that obviously that was that energy I felt when I first got there that, you know, she's clearly making her presence known with yeah. this light. And she's also, um, you know, like the cat can obviously see her mm-hmm. as well. And it's funny because when I tell people that story, like some folks are like, oh, that's really freaky. I would have wanted to move immediately. But I don't know. There was something really calming about that. But mm-hmm. also because I, I again, like the energy didn't feel negative. Right. Like it like I think you can feel that when someone's energy is just not good or not right. And that wasn't it. Um, if anything, I think for me, it was really heartbreaking mm-hmm. that the energy was still there. Yeah. You know, that it wasn't five hours north with her parents you know that for whatever reason that energy felt that it needed to linger and stay in that specific space ready to leave the house. um but for me there was always when i lived there there was something really comforting about knowing that i felt protected it's the short version i wonder what happened to her i don't know and you know what's funny is like a couple of people have asked me that they were like well did you ever like do a google search to figure it out and i was like i was like honestly it didn't really matter yeah yeah, I wasn't curious in that way to know, like, how or why she she passed over. I think it... Because, like I said, I you know, it was clear to me that, like, she she felt deeply connected to the that home and to that space. Yeah. And so, for me, it was just, like, a... The confirmation of the, the light and the energy being their daughter, to me, I, the way I felt living in that space was, I just need to honor the space, you know? Yeah. And treat the space with respect because this isn't my home. This is their home. Which is really beautiful and not necessarily par for the course in the way that like we've been presented with these stories in this culture, which is like you go in there and you get them out, you right. know, yeah. like, which is not respecting. But I mean, again, that's like also America, right? Like we like came and we were like, this is our land. And like, you're going to get out of here. <laughs> so it's just like the same story over and over again. But yeah, like working with deceased human spirits or even just like spirits of the land or you know there are spirits sometimes of like actual properties themselves that accumulate over time and mm-hmm. and it's not good or bad just like people yeah. aren't good or bad like death doesn't change that necessarily no. so yeah like when a bad person dies and they aren't able to like make it where they're supposed to go yeah like that might not feel so good if you're living there you know but if somebody lovely or heartbroken or with a lot of light in them passes and for whatever reason feels like they need to stay in the physical plane. That's not necessarily our right just because we're paying the rent to just be like, get out of here, girl. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of Lilydale? No. What is that? Mm-mm. So Lilydale is this spiritualist community that's located in Northwestern New York, not too far from Buffalo. Okay. Um, there's a really wonderful documentary that you should check out. I think you can find it on YouTube. It was, uh, it aired on HBO years and years back called No One Ever Dies in Lilydale. Mm. And again, it's just all of these 
spiritualists, not mediums, not psychics, spiritualists who... Like from the spiritualist church? I believe so. Got it. Um, but they... And they do all kinds of readings, right? But uh, the doc is incredible. And, and I lived... I don't know, maybe two and a half, three hours from Lilydale mm. when I was working in higher ed um, in my late 20s and, and early part of my 30s. And so I've visited Lilydale quite a few times. And the very first time that I visited Lilydale, I had a reading with a spiritualist named uh, Sherry Lee Calkins, who um, she does aura readings. And so you sit in a room with her and she just has like a huge pad and all of her pastels and then like energy and you know, your angels and your spirit guides come through and she draws, you know, she's just sort of putting colors on a page and then she kind of explains to you um, eight years of your life. So Whoa. the four years prior to that moment that you're sitting with her and then the four years after. Um, and when I had that reading, one of the things that she said to me was, you know, all of us have an angel and our angel is assigned to us at birth. And then we all have spirit guides. Um, and you kind of collect, maybe it's the wrong word, but you collect your spirit guides along the way. Yeah, you gather a posse. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, your squad who's going to be there to, to, to support you. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is she told me that my sister and I actually share an angel. Because oh. she told me that my, I got really, really, really ill um, as a sophomore in college. Um, and I had a, a walking pneumonia. And what she told me during my reading is that she said the same angel. No, 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 not angel. Sorry. No, because my sister has her angel. I have my own angel. Uh, it's our spirit guide. She said my sister and I share the same. Sp uh, uh, sh we share a spirit guide. And that my spirit guide who saved me when I was near death um, is the same spirit guide that saved my sister during her birth. What? And the funny thing is, my sister, when she was born, had an umbilical cord wrapped around her neck, and she almost died at birth. And so it was fascinating that she, you know, was able to, to share that with me. Um, and I'm convinced that that spirit guide is, um, my sister and I have a brother who passed away. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, oh, it's probably our brother who's our shared spirit guide. Um but all that to say that I think hearing that and knowing that we all have an angel and that we have spirit guides, like I've my approach to to energy and people passing over or being in space where I can feel energy is to never be afraid of it because in some strange way to go back to to the um, the orange light and the young woman in, in the home that I was living in, I feel like part of my success is somehow rooted in her being in that space with me mm. because that bedroom is where I did the bulk of my writing. And I, like, I love the book, The Secret. Um, and I, after graduating from my MFA program at UCLA, um, created a, a, a vision board for myself. And that vision board I put up in that bedroom oh, wow. behind the bedroom door so that every morning when I would wake up, I would see it and I would reflect on it every day, every morning for five minutes before starting my day. Every single thing on that vision board has happened. Wow. Every single thing on that board has come to pass. And so there's a part of me that feels like, you know, somehow that 
she, that light and being in that space has absolutely. So to me, that's divine. Yeah. You know, she that, that has something to do with. Imbued it in some way. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I wanted to get in a bit to talking about your queerness mm-hmm. too. I'm curious for you, you know, as someone who grew up, yeah, sort of having an understanding of all these things, how was growing up for you and learning to understand your sexuality? Did you find a point where you understood that to be, okay, well, this is greater than me? Mm -hmm. I think like most young, you know, queer people, like, you know, there was a lot of bullying and teasing and um, a lot of internalized homophobia um, and once I left for college, you know, in my early 20s, realizing that, like, something's got to give, you know, like, you know who you are authentically right. yeah. and, you know, like, you are doing a disservice to yourself by not allowing the best parts of you to be out in the world and to be shared and and by not celebrating all of who you are, um, you know, you're never really going to reach the highest peak um you you'll never really be self-actualized and so to be honest with you i think that funny enough the thing that really shifted my um my ideology and and my view on my sexuality was writing it was Mm. specifically becoming a storyteller you know because what i realized when i started this you know journey of being a a screenwriter was that having these identities being a person of color you know being part of the lgbt community um it just it's it's a lens that i have and it allows me to view the world in a very specific way in the same way that being cisgendered and the same way that being male does as well um and so those lenses that's what's in my toolkit you know, like that is what, whatever you want to call it, the universe, God, you know, mm-hmm. like that's what I've been gifted. Um, and so let me use this gift um, to the very best of my ability. And so there's something about being part of the queer community that like, I wouldn't give it up for anything. Outside of the fact, that I just love the community, you know, like I love all the letters and yeah. I think, you know, there's just such a uh, beauty in in the scope and breadth of the experience of being part of the, the queer and trans community um, and and um, for folks who are non-binary as well. But anytime I sit to write a story, like I'm bringing all of my, all of my joys and all of my hopes and all of my dreams and all of my traumas and all of my hurts with me. And so, you know, no, I don't want to be, you know, whoever we've decided is going to be at the top of that mountain, you know? So in this culture, it's to be a straight, white, cisgendered man. It's like, and I'm sure there's, you know, much that can come from having those, holding those identities. Um, And I'm sure if, you know, the straight, white, cis men would talk about the gifts of that in their own specific (laughs) way. But for me, I'm just, I'm (laughs) really, yeah, a whole other conversation. But I'm really grateful for the gifts that I have been given. Um, and specifically being part of the the queer community and the way that it has um, impacted my life and forced me to look at the world and to appreciate uh, diversity and and how it's influenced the stories that I want to tell. 
Yeah. So coming out was hard for you, huh? Um, it was a struggle. I mean, I it was one that I was definitely. I mean, I was battling against that tide. Something awful. You know, I really just didn't want to have to come out and acknowledge that that was my truth. But I think it's because at the time, um, I really believed the the rhetoric that I, as a you know queer or gay person, couldn't have the things that my straight counterparts have, mm-hmm. right? So you know, at the time, it was all about getting married and having you know the wife and the 2.5 kids and the dog and the picket fence and, you know, yada, yada, blah, 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 on and on. Um, And the reality is, was like, I just needed to recalibrate my brain. It's like, you can have all those things too. And what's really wonderful and lovely about being part of the LGBT community is that you get to redefine exactly what those things are, you know? And so, um, and if you don't want those things, that's also okay. And so I think that you know, there was a long journey even after I came out to getting to the place where I realized, like, you make the rules for you. Like, there is no rule book that says this is how you have to live your life. Um, you know, like, there's all these self-imposed rules in the way that, you know, in the same way that gender is a construct. You know, I think that, you know, in many ways, how to live a life has also become a, a, a construct. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we just, we impose all, all of these really rigid rules on people and it's like no like you get to decide what is best for you um you know and my job is just to respect your choices and and to honor your choices if we're sharing spaces if we're holding Mm -hmm. space together that's it um and so i think once i came to that which really didn't come again until i was already in my like late 20s early 30s that's really when life opened up i don't think it's by chance that when my when my mind when my mindset shifted and then life just sort of shifted on its axis as well that then you know i was able to be open to having the career that i have and finding love and really allowing myself to embrace joy right cuz it coincided a bit with cuz you studied film and early on right mm-hmm. when you were younger but then left for a while yeah, for almost 10 years. Yeah. And so did that coincide somewhat with your acceptance more? Like, I'm going to accept my truth here. I'm going to accept my truth in this area, too. And It did. And can I tell you what the thing that actually led to that was turning 30? Because mm. there was something about... And I've never put stock in, like, birthdays and specifically, like, the numbers. I think it's, again, it's one of those things where you feel the pressure to do that because other people... Like, oh my goodness, like, this is the big one, you know, it's, you know, it's 25 or it's whatever. And um, for whatever reason, like, I, I really, I went through it on 29. I don't know why. And Saturn, Saturn return. return. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. At some point, I want to write a book about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Are everyone... you familiar with the concept? No, tell me. It's so Saturn, which is the planet of responsibility, <laughs> but also like your soul contracts and your destiny. Like he's the tough love teacher of the Zodiac. And so your Saturn return is when Saturn returns to the place in your birth chart when he was, where he was when you were born. So that's one reason why we also like 
maybe lose a lot of people around that age because it's like they just like can't level up. But it's also this mm-hmm. moment where like you get the understanding of like what you're really supposed to be doing here. And for some people that really kind of collapses them inwards because you really have to level up. And for other people, it can be a tremendous period of like empowerment and awakening. And Angel always yeah. says that you get a gift if you work your Saturn. But <laughs> yeah. it's but you got to walk through a fire to get to that <laughs> gift. <laughs> yeah. It makes me want to oh. look at your chart and see your Saturn placement. <laughs> um, please find it. Yeah. yeah. We're going to find him. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I turned 30 and I think when I, once 30 happened, um, there was just a moment for me where, you know, I was very reflective at that moment. And I remember just thinking like, gosh, like 30 years have gone by and all the things I've accomplished in these 30 years and how long 30 years feels and how mm. in the, here's the thing, right? I, I've, I've had a hard time articulating this out loud before and I'm going to try now, but we don't really fully have a concept of time, right? Like what is time and what does it feel like? And it, you know, it's yesterday feels exactly like two years ago, which feels exactly like 20 years ago, right? Because at this point, it's all already happened. And now it's just logged in your brain as a memory that you can just like recall and pick it up. And so there are memories that I have from when I was five and six that feel as fresh and as real and as recent as things that happened two hours ago. And so I say all that to say that 30 years, yeah, that's a long time. But the reality is, like, it'll go by in a flash. And before you know it, and then 30 years just passed. And so there was something about just sitting with that when I turned 30 that was a real mindfuck for me. Um, and I just kept thinking, another 30 years is a really long time, Stephen. Like, that's, that's, you've got a lot of time. And also, before you know it, 30 years <laughs> yeah. will have passed. And I just was so horrified by the idea that I was going to turn 60 and was going to have a lot of regret. That I was going to look back and have now 60 years of memories that were filed away, and that I would have very few that I could pick up and say, that's one that I'm proud of. Mm. And just something about that thought, just, again, everything just shifted. Um, and so that's that's really where, where everything sort of changed for me. You are responsible for... You know, obviously, it's a community now of talented people who've come together. But this show, Pose, was born out of moments with yourself and visions that came through, and and then putting your hands to the keys and getting it going. And I mean, it has literally shifted culture in such a positive way. Are you able to like take that in? Um, yes and no. I mean, as my therapist has told me, I have an emotional wall. And so, (laughs) um, if I let the, oh no, it's not a wall anymore. Actually, we landed on, I now have, I have an emotional garage door. Oh, well, that sounds like a good boundary. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when to pull it up and you don't want to put it down. Mm-hmm. And she always, as she reminds me, and you get to decide when you want it to be up and when you want it to be down. Um, but I... If I let the garage door up and I think about, you know, I think about it, then it just, you know, I go into straight ugly cry, yeah. um, which that's not 
helpful for anyone. Um, <laughs> the the cop out response that I've been giving, and and I shouldn't say cop out anymore because the reality is I really do feel this way. Like it's really hard for me to to gauge what the response and 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 the effect of of the show has been. I think partly because I'm still living in it because yeah. we're still creating it, we're still producing it. Um, I feel like that question I'll have a really wonderful answer for in like 10 years. Right, yeah. When there's distance from it. Um, and then I can sort of look back and reflect on it. Right now where I'm in it, it's like, I know that people are responding to it, but um, it's all immediate. And I think like, I'm not a, I'm not a micro thinker. Like I'm much more macro in general. And so it's great that people are feeling seen and heard through the work right now. Um, but in my brain, and maybe this is just part of the neuroses of being me, um, like I can't help but think, okay, well, what's the long standing, like what's the lasting impact of it going to be? Mm-hmm, you know, like mm-hmm. through and through. Yeah. I mean, that's so critically important to me is like, I, like I, I really truly believe that every single one of us like has a calling, right? Like we all... Um, as as spiritual beings, um, you know, we've all been put here in this human form at this particular moment to do something very specific. And so I really, truly believe that mine is to just, to, again, be that conduit that creates work. And right now that work is television and in five, 10 years it might shift and be something else. Um, But just to create work and to put work out into the world that hopefully is going to force people to reflect on the choices that they're making Um, and hopefully will just shift mindsets. And, And again, like it sounds really simple, but just open hearts and open minds and just create a little more um, civility in the world. Um, and so I know that that's why I'm here. And so everything I do has to be in service of that. You've been through so much. You had a, you know, a challenging upbringing or or had challenging circumstances in your upbringing, you know, having to sort of navigate the the worlds of intersectionality in, in this world we live in. I mean, where does your perseverance come from? I think it just comes with the kit. You know, I think like when you're, when you're born, you know, when, your your divine energy, your spirit is sort of placed in a body and you emerge from your mom's womb, it's like, okay, you know, you are a woman, you're a person of color, you are queer, or in some instances, you're all three. Um, so I think resilience is just in that packet of information, <laughs> you know, about how to navigate the world. I just, I don't feel like we as people from historically marginalized communities have the luxury to not be resilient right? and to not be persistent. And I imagine having like so much association with like the trans community. I mean, talk about a resilience. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that's inspired you to some degree as well. Absolutely. You know, the trans community as well as the ballroom community. Right. You know, that it, I mean... I take strength from their strength. So, you know, when I think about resilience, I think about, you know, all of those incredible LGBTQ plus people who 
you know, had been rejected by their families and the government and were dealing with not one but two horrible epidemics that were plaguing their communities and eviscerating the community, frankly, with no resources, um, you know, with, with no access. Um, and yet, in spite of all of that, were strong enough, resilient enough to create chosen families and to support one another. Um, and, like, how beautiful is that? You know, like, there's so much to take away from that journey. You know, when I think about resilience, I think about my grandmothers, you know, who grew up on this small island, really poor, um, and had to walk hundreds of miles, sometimes, you know, in threadbare clothes and no shoes, you know, and bloody soles of their feet. So it's like, again, I just, I don't feel like I have the, I don't feel like I have the right to complain. I don't feel like I have the right to say that I'm tired. I just, I don't know, that just doesn't really live in my DNA because it's like, no, that's tired. (laughs) You know, like you're privileged. You get to like, you know, live in Hollywood and like make TV. Like if that's your stress, then it's like, go away. So preach. <laughs> Pose. I couldn't help that. <laughs> well, you're legendary. So thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for being here and Thanks. sharing your story and your wisdom and and all, also like the stories as well because they're really good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me to be part of the house of the spiritual. Yes, <laughs> honey. Yes. <laughs> Um, So we end every episode with uh, a tarot card pull. So I'm going to shuffle the cards and then ask you to pull a card. And this is going to be a message that resonates for everybody, um, no matter the future place or time when they listen to it. Perfect. Just going to take a moment to shuffle the cards and everybody listening, you know the drill. Unless it's the first time you've ever listened to the podcast, in which case the drill is to just take a moment and get centered. And you can connect to the card just by hearing the sound of them being shuffled. Of course, if you're driving a car, we encourage you to keep your eyes open. (laughs) Yes, please. But if you're not, maybe take a moment just to go inside. All right, and now I'm going to go spread the cards out so Stephen can pull one. All right. What did Stephen pull for the children? So Stephen pulled the judgment card, which traditionally has a lot of like Christian, Judeo-Christian, like even the imagery is like the last judgment and like people rising up out of their coffins. But that's not really the message. What judgment really speaks to is like transformation achieved. Mm -hmm. Judgment is the second to last card in the journey of the major arcana. And so I always say like, if the death card is the invitation into transformation, judgment shows up when you are truly no longer the same. And it's, it's not the happy ending, essentially. Like, it's when you've gotten to the end of the journey, but you realize, oh, everything's changed because I've changed. Like, when Dorothy gets back home and she's like, this is home, there's no place like home, but I'm totally different based on what I've gone through. And so judgment is always an ongoing process of asking yourself, am I going to do things the way that that old version of myself used to do it? Or am I going to commit to this new version of myself that is no longer an idea, but is fully realized and here now? Mm-hmm. And so judgment to me always feels like a portal through which you step into this new life, but it's a choice and it happens moment to moment because we all know we can always fall back into those old habits and it's not like giving yourself a hard time about that. But I think it's important. And I always think about it like I'm Brandon 4.0. 
You know, like there was a 3.0 and there was a 2.5 and a 2.3 and a 2, you know, but it's like giving yourself the opportunity to upgrade and really holding to that. And that's really the, that's one of that's one of my favorite cards because it means like you did it girl, like you're somebody new now. So continue to express yourself as somebody new because the next step in this journey is a whole new journey. So that's the message. Are you ready? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you one quick anecdote? Yes, yeah. please. My mom, uh, when she read runes consistently, I'm not, I'm going to forget the name of it now, but I always would pick the rune that represented evolution. Mm. And so I wound up getting <laughs> my first tattoo, which is on my right shoulder, is a phoenix, specifically because yes. it's all about that rebirth and regrowth. And so I absolutely believe in this notion everything you just said specifically about brandon 4.0 resonates with me because wow. i believe we're constantly evolving and growing and changing yeah but it's fascinating to me that that's the card <laughs> that's that i want because i'm cons- it's always well it just goes to show it doesn't matter the language the message is the message because i don't Truly. know runes at all but that makes sense to me that there's just all these different languages but it's the same message coming through yeah yeah well, thank you again, Stephen. Yeah, really, Thanks. thank you. I mean, we're obviously obsessed with Pose. We're so Yay. grateful for the gift that you and everyone involved with that show has been giving to us and cannot wait for the next season. I know we have some time, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 so we just have to watch season one and season two again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if people want to find you, where where can they find you if they want to follow you in the world. Oh, um, I'm on Twitter at Stephen Canals and I'm on Instagram at SV Canals. Fab. And then obviously y'all should be watching Pose. I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably watch Pose, but if you don't, then get on it. Get to Netflix. Come on. As always, a big thank you to our community of gazers for tuning in and listening. We so appreciate your comments and Mm -hmm. your reviews and your five-star ratings and just your engagement. It means so much to us to feel this community grow and deepen. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you. A big thank you to Juan Diego, who makes us all sound so gorgeous and fabulous. We're so grateful to you. A big thank you to Justin Simeon for all the interstitial music. And And that's that's the tea. So until next time, this has been your transit through the the spiritual spiritual gaze. Yes, honey.